This morning we are going to be looking at a particular verse, and it's going to be Luke 23, verse 34, and that's where we're going to really just be zeroing in. And I'm, I'm going to read that, and then we're, uh, we'll, we'll read the whole thing in just a little bit. I'll ask you to stand for it. And this is the phrase. And honestly, it's a phrase that has been, uh, in some way, troubling me. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I don't know if it's true for me as it's true for you. Forgiveness is one of the hardest things to receive, but it's even more hard to give. Part of my story is one of childhood sexual abuse, right? Those of you who are familiar with my story, you've heard me tell that story time and time again. And those of you who are unfamiliar with my story, it, it's a story that has traumatized me in a, a myriad of different ways. There's times where I'm brought back to the moments where I, I, I can almost feel and touch and smell the moment the violations, the hurt, the pain. And I don't know what to do with it at times. The hours and hours of clock time with the counselor. Hours. The thousands of dollars I have given to a professional counselor. And the thing that I still struggle with is forgiveness of being done, of letting go. And this morning, God has a word for us as to what, what do we do with this thing called forgiveness? We're going to see that as the crowds were, were mocking Christ, as His loved ones kind of abandoned Him, and the, as the Roman soldiers were nailing Him to the cross, and as He was... It was, he was put out completely in shame. Jesus offered these words. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. And in that moment, we see that Jesus accomplished forgiveness on the cross. In that moment. And as Christians, we need to remember that God has completely forgiven us. And there's part of me that wonders, how, how do I really feel about that forgiveness? Do I think that, man, that is just really nice? But I'm not really sure that I, I need anything to be forgiven. In other words, I'm generally a pretty good guy. That was nice of God to do that. But I'm generally, I'm already pretty good. Or do, do I think that overall I'm a good person, but oh, you know, occasionally I mess up, and so I, I'm thankful for those forgiveness moments for God coming in and interceding. Man, thank you for that. Or do I think, amen, I can't believe it, crying out with even the psalmist in Psalm 32, blessed in the man, is the man whose transgression is forgiven whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. 
If I'm honest, theologically, the third one is the way to go, right? But oftentimes, I feel like I'm the second. Thank God he's covering up for those every once in a while kind of things. I'm generally a pretty good person. I sin like everyone else, but I'm not walking around doing terrible things. C.S. Lewis has a, a phrase, and it's this. Everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. Isn't that true? I, I love the idea of forgiveness because I know I, occasionally I need it or in general I need it, but when it really comes to it, when it comes to that idea of forgiveness, it, it's really difficult. So this morning, we're going to look to the one who perfectly offers us forgiveness and say, how does that work for me personally? And what does that mean for me when I live this world where I'm going to be bumped up against and bruised and offended and sinned against? So my friends, let's stand. We're going to start reading. Actually, we're going to read an extended piece just so that we get the whole context. We're going to start with uh, verse 1. And we're going to read through verse 38. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate said to them, said to him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered, you have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and to the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, Judea and from Galilee even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he had learned that he belonged, that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who, himself, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him. And he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at length. But he made no answer. The chief priests and scribes stood by vehemently accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treating him with contempt and mocked him. Then, arraying him in splendid clothing, they sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. 
But they all cried out together, Away with this man and release us, Barabbas, a man, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! A third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I have found him in no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder. For whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. And as they led him away, they seized one, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed, behind, followed him a multitude of people, of, of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that were never nursed. Then they began to say, Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things, when the wood is green, what will happen to it? happen when it is dry two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him and when they came to the place that is called the skull there they crucified him and the criminals one on his right and one on it on his left and jesus said father forgive them for they know not what they do. And they cast lots and divide his, divided his, his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the ruler scoffed at him. He saved others. Let him save himself. If he is a Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the King of the Jews. This is the word, Lord. You may be seated. We live in a broken world. You are going to be wronged. You are going to be hurt. You are going to be sinned against. And if you haven't experienced that yet, it's time for somebody to pop your bubble. All of us are going to experience pain. We're going to all experience hurt. We're all going to experience some sort of violation. What do we do with that? What do we do with that? The reality is that Jesus, he offers us the answer. He calls us to forgive. Not vengeance, not retribution, not getting even, but he is calling us to forgive. It sounds so simple, but yet it is so hard. And it seems to all be hinged on how do we deal 
with wrongdoing, with hurt, being sinned against, if we are going to be able to forgive, we have to know and we have to feel the extent that we have been forgiven. For us to be able to forgive, we've got to understand the extent to which we have been forgiven. Jesus' first saying on the cross was a prayer. He was going through the most hard, the most painful thing that he ever had to endure. Yet, what do we find Jesus doing in that moment? If it was me, I would be cussing and screaming and giving people the bird and wanting to throw rocks. I would be angry in that moment. I would just be over-the-top angry. But what do we find Jesus doing in that moment? He was praying. And what's even more impressive is that he was praying for forgiveness. When times are good and when, when you're feeling healthy, maybe you, you'll look at other people and you'll just say, man, I, I, I want to pray for them. My life is really good. Theirs really sucks. They're going through a hard time. So you know what? Out of my healthiness, out of my good place in life, I am going to offer a prayer for you. But when times go sour, when things are bad, when we feel wrong, when we are persecuted, when we feel pain, we have this woe is me mentality and we tend to focus on ourselves, right? Every one of us does that. We want to be somehow at the epicenter with the whole wide world revolving around us. And that is our natural human tendency. It might not surprise you to see Jesus praying in the midst of this trial. But it should surprise us to see what he is praying for in the midst of this trial. We could understand if in the midst of this trial, if he was praying, Father, they've nailed me to this piece of wood. I came to save these wretched souls and now they're trying to kill me. Strike them dead and let's start all over from scratch. Part of me would go, you got every right. In that moment, that'd be understandable. But that was unlike Jesus. Or maybe it might feel more natural for us to hear him pray, Father, I, I know I have to endure this cross for the salvation of these rebels, but it's really difficult and it's really painful, so please help me endure to the end. That'd be an understandable prayer too, right? But he didn't pray that either. During the time when it would be understandable and expected for Jesus to be self-focused, he was being utterly others-focused. His focus was on God and those who were killing him. He said, Father, forgive them. And so, through this, we see Jesus' humility and his divine condensation. And the, the first and foremost wrong he had in mind wasn't the wrong being committed against him. But the thing that he had in mind was the wrong being committed against God. 
Jesus was showing us how we ought to deal with being wronged and being sinned against. First of all, we, we can see we have to pray. Our view of God's holiness and righteousness must be such that we realize the wrong committed is not against us, but ultimately it is against God. When someone comes to you and they confess that they have lied to you, we immediately feel hurt, we feel betrayed, we feel angry, and in that moment there's all kinds of righteous indignation kind of popping up, right? Or wives, let's say that your husband confesses that he has been looking at pornography again. And this isn't the first time. Again. What do you do? How do you respond in that moment? Do you first and foremost have such a view of your own righteousness that you say, how dare you do that to me? How could you hurt me like that? That is probably uh, uh, one of the first feelings that pops up into your heart, into your mind. Or do you have such a view of God's holiness and God's righteousness that you are broken over the fact that your husband has wronged God? Do you see the, the difference? If anybody has, could, could be rightly offended by the wrong against him, it was Jesus. And yet, his first and foremost concern, his care was for the restoration between a sinner and the Father. That was his first ministry, his primary ministry, is this work of reconciliation between a sinful world and the Father. He wanted to create a bridge so that there was fellowship once again. What about John 14? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father, how? Except through me. We, we don't need to pray how the person has wronged us and to ask for strength to forgive them, even though that may be a necessary prayer. First and foremost, we need to pray about how the person has hurt and sinned against God and ask God, God, would you forgive them? If God in his infinite holiness can forgive, how much more should we be able to forgive? If God would freely offer forgiveness with arms outstretched, with, with an embrace, not reluctance, how much more should we offer that kind of forgiveness? This isn't just the way that God forgives other people, but it is even how God forgives you. This is how God forgives you. Suddenly we realize that the most difficult thing in the world to do is, should be the most natural thing for us to do. Something you once refused to do, now it should, it should become this thing that we feel compelled to do. You forgive because you have been forgiven. We, we hear Jesus say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Only when you realize that Jesus wasn't praying just for people out there, but you specifically. That's who he was praying for. He was praying for you specifically. 
then you will be able to forgive. So let's kind of unpack this and let's go even deeper and begin to, to see and feel the extent of the forgiveness that has been offered and given to us. Remember, the depth and the extent that we see and feel ourselves being forgiven is the extent and depth that we will be able to forgive others. So let's look at this prayer of Jesus and ask two questions. First question is, to whom did Jesus offer this prayer for forgiveness? To whom? The second question that we are going to ask is, when did Jesus offer this prayer of forgiveness? So the first one. Who did Jesus pray for? Jesus offering up his prayer to those, offered up this prayer to those who did not know what they were doing. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. It wasn't offered to those who were, who were repenting. It wasn't offered to those who were confessing. It wasn't offered to those who were sorry for their sins. The Bible says that while we were still God's enemies, what did God do? He offered us forgiveness. Not after we realized all of our wrongdoings, not after we realized, oh man, I really am sinful, but while we were still dead in our transgressions and sins, he offered us mercy and grace and he offered us forgiveness while we were still dead. It's not our confession. It is not our repentance that births up God's mercy, but it's God's mercy that births confession and repentance. We've been hearing that all the way through Galatians, right? God offers you something. Now respond. God acts first. We act second. It's not that we first loved God. It's that He first loved us. So in light of this, in light of this crazy way that God works, how do we respond? How should we forgive? Many times, I know from my own personal lives, my willingness to forgive is directly tied to the other person's ability to see that they're wrong. Do you get that? And I can be passive aggressive with the best of you. I can let you know that you have wronged me and once you come to me and let me know how sorry and pained you are, then I'll consider forgiveness. But I want you first to know how badly you have wronged me. I'm willing to forgive just as long as you, are tr you truly know how bad you've messed up. I'm willing to forgive as long as... I can see sorrow and remorse in how you're feeling, but not before then. Is it ringing true with any of you? Is that how you look at forgiveness? Once you have shown remorse, once you have shown confession, once you recognize how bad you have screwed up, then you will receive forgiveness. If that was the way that God viewed forgiveness, we'd all be screwed we would be without any salvation whatsoever. 
If, if the only way that God would forgive us, if we realize, if we truly, truly realize the enormity of our sin, that we were showing remorse and sorrow, confessing and repenting just the right way, would there be any forgiveness or salvation for us whatsoever? No. So Jesus prays, interceding for us, not while we were repenting, but especially when we were not repenting at all. Especially when we don't know the enormity of how, how we've wronged him and when we were not confessing. That is how Jesus did it perfectly. So are you called to forgive those who have wronged you? And what about those who don't care or don't know? Are you called to forgive them? Yes. Because that's how God forgave you. You didn't know the enormity of your sinfulness or, or how to confess it if you did know. You didn't know how to repent, nor did you ever try to repent. You were an enemy and you wanted nothing to do with God whatsoever. But in the midst of that, you, of you wronging Him, God offered you mercy and he forgave you. Now friends, hear this. This is not a kind of a, a forgive and forget kind of thing. God doesn't do an, an erasing kind of act in our head. Doing so is actually uh, uh, deceiving or lying to yourself about what has happened. To kind of say the pain really never happened. It didn't actually occur. How many of you are familiar with uh, the epic, well-known, uh, award-winning movie uh, Men in Black? Throw it up, right? You don't have a neutralizer. And for those of you who know, don't understand this, th this neutralizer is a thing that when you press the button and you look into the light, all, some, all your memory from that moment is suddenly erased as if it never happened. That's not how this works. Memories are real. Pain is real. The circumstances that took place are real especially if their memories wrapped up in hurt and pain and abuse. They will always be there. And to say that God will erase all those memories is a bunch of junk. That is part of the story that God has given us. But there is a wonderful opportunity Instead, to operate in a lifestyle that is saying this instead. I have not been able to forget. In fact, I remember it quite well. And yet, by God's grace, I still choose to forgive. Jesus prayed like that as well. He did not forget the pain on the cross. It didn't erase it. 
Jesus prayed for forgiveness for us. Not when we were sorry, not when the pain was erased, but when we were, in fact, quite happy in our sins. So when did Jesus offer this prayer? It wasn't a few years after the resurrection. It wasn't once the wounds in his hands and his feet were healed. It wasn't after the pain of being forsaken by the Father had kind of died down a little bit and things had gotten better uh, when Jesus was praying for us. It was in the midst of the pain and the wrongdoing. It was when the hammer was still warm with the stain of his blood. He was praying that prayer in the midst of pain and he was saying, Father, forgive them. Charles Spurgeon, I I love this quote. It's a long one, stick with. Listen to it carefully. Charles Spurgeon said this. It was not a prayer for enemies who had done him an ill deed years before, but for those who were there and were murdering him. Not in cold blood did the Savior pray after he had forgotten the injury and could the more easily forgive. But while the first red drops of blood were spurting on the hands which drove the nails, while yet the hammer was bestained with crimson gore, his blessed mouth poured out the fresh, warm prayer. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. If our Savior might have paused from intercessory prayer, it was surely when they fastened him to the tree, when they were guilty of direct acts of deadly violence to his divine person, he might then have ceased to present petitions on their behalf. But sin cannot tie the tongue of our interceding friend. Oh, what comfort is here. You have sinned, believer. You have grieved his spirit. But you have not stopped that potent tongue which pleads for you. And some of you are probably thinking, Paul, you you don't understand what I have done. You have no clue of the depth of sin that I am living in or that I have lived. And so it is absolutely ludicrous to think that God would forgive me, that he's capable of forgiving me. Your sin, no matter what it is, has not, will not, and cannot stop the tongue of Christ praying for you. There is nothing that you have ever done, will do, or can do in the future, or doing right now, that will ever stop Christ interceding. Father, forgive Paul. He does not know what he is doing. There's nothing you can do. Nothing can stop Jesus from praying for you. Because God was willing to Forgive us at the very height of our rebellion in sinning against him, in the the crucifixion of his son, and because he didn't delay his forgiveness until we got our act together, we can't delay 
forgiving other people as well. It was at the height of our rebellion, as nails were going into the hands of Christ, that he said, Father, forgive them. So what does that mean for us? Jesus didn't wait to forgive you. He didn't wait until you got your life better. He didn't wait for you to straighten up your act. He didn't wait until you sufficiently felt bad for what you have done. He prayed for our forgiveness when we weren't sorry or we weren't repentant, when we were at the height of our sin, at the height of our rebellion. If you've been forgiven like this, you have to forgive people, other people like this. And maybe you're thinking, Paul, you do not understand the injustice that has been done towards me. Some of you have been abandoned. Some of you have been abused. Your life has been ruined. Someone has cheated on you. They've divorced you. You've got some legitimate complaints. And right now, as you sit, you still bear the sins and the scars and the consequences of that injustice. You're right. I will never understand. I will never know the depth of your pain, of that injustice. But somebody does. Somebody knows the level of injustice that you have felt. Somebody still bears the scars of the consequences of that injustice. And that person is Jesus. You'll never look more like Jesus when you experience a radical injustice and you breathe out radical forgiveness. That's when you know the gospel has truly taken root in your heart and your life is when in the midst of radical injustice, you offer, instead of retribution and anger, you offer radical forgiveness. So let me tell you a story about a man named Ronnie Smith and his wife, Anita. Back in 2013, Ronnie, a young husband and a father, had been out for his morning jog when gunmen in a black Jeep targeted him and killed him. When the news report came out that he graduated from the University of Texas with a master's degree and, a, and was teaching in all places, he was teaching chemistry in Benghazi. When I heard that, my ears perked. I took note of it, put it in my Evernote file, tagged it forgiveness and go, what is going on here? As I read the rest of the story, Listen to this. If you know anything like Benghazi, it was and still is highly unstable. It was a war-torn city where militias uh, held more power than the government. So you start asking yourself, why would a young man who has a beautiful wife and beautiful children with uh, the intelligence of getting a master's degree leave beautiful Texas and go to war-torn Benghazi? What is going on? Why would anybody go there to teach? There's plenty of places all around the world 
prestigious places that you would go. Why would you do that? It's because Ronnie Smith was a Christian who wanted to serve the Libyan people. He believed that because Jesus was willing to die for those who had sinned against him, Ronnie believed that following Jesus meant willing to risk even his own life and his family's life to serve those who might be his enemies. The gift that God had given him was a gift to teach chemistry. And according to all the news reports out there, he had a big personality. His students loved him. Loved him. So fully aware of this danger, he and his wife moved their family to Libya in the immediate aftermath of the revolution. Not before, when everything looked kind of good and safe, but in the immediate aftermath of the revolution. While things were still in disarray, they considered the the lives of their neighbors and their students more important than their own safety. So if you were Anita Smith, the, the wife of this talented teacher who was gunned down, how would you respond? Here's how she responded in an open letter to the people of Libya. My husband and best friend Ronnie Smith loved the Libyan people. For more than a year, Ronnie served as a chemistry teacher in a school in Benghazi. And he would gladly have given more years to Libya if unknown gunmen had not cut his life short on December 5, 2013. Ronnie and I came to Libya because we saw the suffering of the Libyan people. But we also saw your hope. And we wanted to partner with you to build a better future. Libya was very different from what we were, had experienced before, but we were excited to learn about the Libyan culture. Ronnie grew to love you and your way of life, as did I. Ronnie really was, quote, Libya's best friend. Friends and family were, from home were concerned about our safety, as were some of you. We talked about this more times than I can count but we stayed because we believed the Libyan people were worth the risk. Even knowing what I know now, I have no doubt that we would both make the same decision and do it all over again. Ronnie loved you all so much, especially his students. He loved to joke with you, tell stories about you, help you with your lives and challenge you to be all you could be. You, he did his best to live out his faith humbly and respectfully within a community of people with a different faith. To his attackers, listen to this. I love you and I forgive you. How could I not? For Jesus taught us to love our enemies, not to kill them or seek revenge. 
Jesus sacrificed his life out of love for the very people who killed him, as well as for us today. His death and resurrection opened the door for us to walk on the straight path to God in peace and forgiveness. Because of what Jesus did, Ronnie is with Jesus in paradise now. Jesus did not come only to take us to paradise when we die, but also to bring peace and healing on this earth. Ronnie loved you because God loved you. Ronnie loved you because God loved him. Not because Ronnie was so great, but because God is so great. To the Libyan people, I always expected that God would give us a heart to love you, but I never expected you to love us so much. We came to bless you, but you blessed us as much, as much more. Thank you. Thank you for your support and love for Ronnie and to our son, Hosea, and me. Since Ronnie's death, my love for you has increased in ways that I never imagined. I feel close to you now than ever before. I hear about people talking, I hear people talking with hate and anger and blame over Ronnie's death. And that's not what Ronnie would want. Ronnie would want his death to be an opportunity for us to show one another love and forgiveness because that is what God has done for us. A radical commitment to Christ is what led the Smiths to Libya. But it didn't stop there. A radical injustice met with radical forgiveness. As Christians, we need to be the most forgiving people on earth. We should forgive no matter what the sin, because no matter what our sin, God forgave us. And it was a costly prayer, right? Every time, other time Jesus went to forgive during his ministry, he said, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. But he was hanging on the cross and he didn't just simply say, hey, your sins are forgiven, guys. Instead, in that moment, he, he asked and he prayed to God, Father, would you forgive them? For they don't know what they're doing. Why did he pray differently in this time? Because in this moment, Jesus was becoming sin, a divine condescension. He was coming down. He was laying down his divine authority and his prerogative to forgive. He was considering his equality with God, something not to be grasped. He who knew no sin was becoming sin on, their, on our behalf. It was costly prayer that required a great price. It was a prayer that Jesus offered up to his father and just said, listen, in my most humiliated state, would you, God, through my sacrifice, would you now forgive these people? Every person that has ever been saved or will ever be saved owe their lives to this prayer in this moment because God was faithful to answer. So if God was willing to answer the prayer of Jesus in that moment, how much more now that He is exalted, perfectly pure, holy and righteous, seated at the right hand of the God, God the Father, will He forgive us now?
The hard work on the cross is done. The hardest prayer in the entire world has been answered. And Jesus is still interceding today. Every time we sin, Father, forgive them. And if He answered Jesus' prayer while He was in the filth of sin, how much more will He answer it today since we are His children? And there's some of you here today who need to hear this. God knows the depth of your sin. He knows the ugly things that have been done. He knows your open rebellion. But he says, will you receive my forgiveness? Will you rest on my work alone? Will you receive Christ's righteousness? Or will you continue to work and live in your sin and your filth? Christ says, come. Receive my forgiveness. It's been purchased for you. The offer is good for you today. Let's pray.